Please take your Bibles and turn them to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. And uh, as you're turning there, I actually <clears throat> neglected to mention during the announcement time um, that uh, we're going to be having a membership class in July uh, called Membership Matters, and uh, it's going to uh, take place over um, uh, a few weekends uh, in that month uh, on Sunday morning. At, uh, starting at 9.30, and then we'll wrap up around 10.30. Again, that's going to be over the course of several Sundays. I can't actually even remember the dates now, but there's a sign-up sheet in the back that has the dates on them, so that I'll show up also for the membership class. But uh, if you're interested in exploring membership at Harbin's, it's like no obligation. It's not like if you go through it, then you're like sucked in and we will never let you leave again. But it's just a uh, means to help you determine what the church is all about and uh, if this is a great fit for you. Um, and uh, I want to encourage you to sign up for that. Um, John chapter 16. John 16. So what is the, uh, what's the greatest word that you could ever give to somebody who is in sorrow? Well, what, what is the best news that you could give to such a person? Surely, uh, one of the most encouraging things that you could uh, give somebody is the promise that their sorrow is only temporary. Now, ever since chapter 14, Jesus has been dealing with the extreme sorrow and grief of the disciples. They have faced emotional hammer blow after hammer blow. It will be this very night, Jesus tells His disciples, that one of you will betray me, one of you will deny me, all of you will scatter and abandon me. And if that's not bad enough, Jesus tells His disciples that very soon He will leave them, and they can't follow Him. The cross is coming. And in their minds, everything is falling apart, and everything is crumbling down around them, and they are freaking out. You ever felt that way? Ever been through a situation like that? You've got it in your head that something's got to turn out a certain way, and you are sure that God agrees with your plan. And you are so convinced of that path, and then when things go differently than you expected, you just totally lose it. Sound familiar? That's where the disciples are in this section of John's gospel. And that's why Jesus, in chapter 14, begins this final time of teaching with the words, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's how he begins this in, in John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe in me. That word troubled could be translated as trembling. They are trembling in their hearts. They are badly shaken up, and they need help. And then if you look at the end of this discourse in uh, chapter 16, verse 33, he says, take heart. So he begins and ends this discourse directly addressing their hearts. And sandwiched in between is a wealth of teaching that's meant to ease those troubled hearts. And so Jesus now, uh, as He nears the end of this final private time of teaching with the disciples, He closes this time with the greatest comfort possible, that their sorrow is only temporary, that their sorrow is passing. It'll, it'll give way to something better. And the reason why that is comforting is because if in the midst of your sorrow you have something better to look forward to, it can sustain you in your sorrow and in your grief. So let's, let's together hear the comforting and encouraging words of Jesus. Let's stand together in honor and reverence of the reading of the words of God. This is a reminder when we stand up, it just reminds us that this is not the words of just mere human beings. This is divinely inspired writing, 
As a matter of fact, this is writing from a, from a man who was actually there in this conversation, the Apostle John. Starting in verse 16, John writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, a little while, uh, actually, let's back up. Let's back up to verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will see Me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see Me. So some of His disciples said to one another, What is this that He says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? Uh, We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own house and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Father, we acknowledge this is your holy and inspired word, and we ask now that you would help us by the power of the Spirit, help us to receive this word, to know it, to understand it, to believe it, and to love it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There are at least five specific teachings that Jesus gives his disciples and by extension to us in this text, he tells them to expect 
five specific things. The first thing is that they will go from ignorance to understanding. These disciples will move from ignorance to understanding. Look with me at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Sometimes the fears and anxieties that we struggle with are heightened when we don't understand what God is doing in our time of difficulty, and we don't understand what the solution is, and that fear can paralyze us. That's exactly what's going on with these disciples. Their hearts are troubled and afraid, and so much of that fear is coming from ignorance. Even after three years with Jesus, they still haven't fully grasped the magnitude of what is happening. You think about this great moment that they are in. In the next few hours, the cosmos is about to be shaken. The world order is about to be turned upside down through the sufferings and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. But they don't get that. They are utterly confused to the point of despair. There are things they desperately need to know, Jesus says, but you can't bear them now. You're in no position to understand and apply the truth that is bound up in this, the greatest moment in history. But Jesus encourages them by telling them, don't worry, soon you're going to understand. Everything will be made clear. And the Holy Spirit will come, and He's going to guide you into all the truth into everything that you need to know to strengthen you, to encourage you, to equip you to carry the mission of God forward. And as we read the Bible story, that's exactly what happens. After Jesus departs from them and He goes to heaven, the Spirit comes, He guides the disciples into all the truth, and and what's the result of that? You're holding it in your hands. It's sitting in your lap. Hopefully, it's not collecting dust on your bookshelf. The apostles were given divine revelation from God, and the result of that is found in the writings of the New Testament. All of the mysteries of the gospel, the full disclosure of what the Old Testament was really all about, all of the implications and applications of what Jesus did in the cross and in the resurrection, everything that we know and need to know about the redemptive plan and purposes of God, all of the knowledge that we need to face the future with peace and joy and hope, all of that is found in the apostolic writings of the New Testament. And so while Jesus' promise to guide the disciples into all of the truth was directly for them, it does have a wider application to you and me. Because as we read and study the inspired text of Scripture that they wrote, uh, the, the Spirit then guides us into all the truth as He brings us illumination and understanding of the text. He opens our eyes, as the psalmist writes, so that we may behold wonderful things in His Word. It is the truth of God's Word that clears away the cobwebs of ignorance and fear and despair as we drink in God's revelation in Christ, as we see the cosmic implications of the gospel and how those implications reach into our little relationships and lives and trials. You know, many people today are looking for a word from God, a revelation from God, and many people are seeking it outside of the Scriptures. They are seeking it in visions 
and in dreams and in all kinds of weird, bizarre phenomena. And yet the Bible never tells you to chase after strange, mystical experiences or new words from God. Instead, we are told that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The sufficiency, that's a scripture about the sufficiency of Scripture. And here Jesus comforts His disciples with the assurance that the Spirit will equip them with all the truth that they need to successfully navigate the challenges ahead. And because that promise was fulfilled and the apostles wrote down that truth for us, we too can rest assured that you and I have everything that we need. We have been given everything that we need to help, to guide, to direct, to encourage us in the days ahead. But not only does Jesus promise a shift from ignorance to understanding, He also promises that the separation from Him and His disciples is temporary. This the separation that the disciples have dreaded so much. Jesus is going to encourage them now by saying that this is a temporary thing, that they will move from separation to reunion. From separation to reunion. Verse 16, Jesus says, "'A little while, and you will see Me no longer.'" And again a little while, and you will see me. In a little while, disciples, I will be murdered on a cross. I will be dead. I will be buried. I will will be a corpse. My body will be hidden away in a tomb. But a little while after that, the stone of that tomb will be rolled away, and I will emerge from the grave, and you will see me again. Now again, while this is a promise made directly to those disciples it is not irrelevant to you and I today. You and I, Christ's disciples in America in 2018, are in a similar situation that those 11 disciples were in. We are distressed. We are sorrowful. We are living through difficulty and pain in our own lives. And the promise Jesus gives you is you will go through a time where you will not see me, but one day you will see me face to face. Scripture speaks of a a time to come where Jesus will return, and every eye will see Him, and we will be with Him at long last. So on the one hand, we're in a similar situation uh, as those disciples were in. But on the other hand, we're actually in a better situation than those disciples were in because we can look back now and we can see what has already happened. Jesus promised the disciples that they would see Him again, and not even the grave could prevent Jesus from fulfilling that promise. And that same Jesus who kept that promise to those disciples, guess what? He will keep His promise to you, that He will come, you will see Him, and He will wipe away every tear from your eye. His reunion with the disciples, His resurrection is the deposit, it's the down payment It is the rock-solid guarantee that gives us confidence in His return and that one day there's going to be a great reunion between Jesus and His bride, the church. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. 
and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Are you encouraged by those words? One day you will meet the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, caught up with Him. What a beautiful thing. What a hopeful thing. But Jesus' disciples are struggling to get their heads around this. Jesus is saying, you're not going to see me, but then you're going to see me. They're still confused here. They're perplexed. Verse 17, so some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, "Uh, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. It's almost like they kind of break off from Jesus. They take a break maybe from the conversation, and now they're off amongst themselves with a little conference. We don't understand what in the world is he talking about. Now, we shouldn't be too hard on the disciples. I think often we probably don't treat them with the grace that we should treat them. It's easy for us to get it all because we're sitting here 2,000 years later. We have 2,000 years of hindsight to look back on. We've got the whole story in our hands right here in the Scriptures. We have to remember, they didn't have the whole story. They were in the story. They, they don't have chapter 20. They're still in chapter 16. They don't even know there's a chapter 16, but they're in it. And they don't know what's coming. And we have to remember that in the minds of most Jews in the first century, in first century Israel, there was no category for a suffering, dying Messiah. That was the weirdest thing in the world. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs conquer. The Messiah is supposed to come and deliver us from Roman oppression and set us free uh, as a people and, and bring about a, a political and, and, and military freedom and independence. That was what was going on in their heads. Messiahs are to be hung up uh, like a slab of meat on a piece of wood, nailed to a cross like a criminal. So if the death of the Messiah is not on their radar, what makes us think that a resurrection would be? I love how Jesus responds. Jesus is not mad at them. He's not impatient with them. Remember, his goal here is to encourage them, not to scold them. And he is lovingly and gently walking them through this. We would have probably slapped him upside the head. That's not what Jesus does. And so Jesus explains further to them what's going to happen, and he gives them a little parable to to illustrate the fact that their experience is going to go from sorrow to joy. Look at verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me. Truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Now, what does he mean by that? Uh, The world will rejoice. Uh, There, Jesus is referring to his enemies, all the people who hate him. They're going to be really happy that Jesus is dead. They figure that's the solution to their problems. We're just going to get rid of Jesus. And so there was a party Friday night and Saturday got rid of this troublemaker, but Sunday's coming. And so he says to them, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Look at verse 20 carefully. Jesus does not say, I will eliminate certain events that make you sorry and replace them with totally different events that causes you joy. 
Instead, he says, your sorrow will turn into joy. In other words, the very events that caused your grief will be the very events that causes your joy. That's the structure in the original language. It's not simply that the sorrow will be replaced by joy, but that it will become joy. So if one of the greatest comforts you could give a sorrowing person is by assuring them that their grief is temporary, an even greater comfort to give is that the thing causing sorrow now will actually be used to further your joy later. The thing that is causing you grief will not fight against God's purposes to do you good. It will actually serve God's purposes to do you good. You see the difference? This is the Romans 8.28 principle, that God causes all things to work together for your good. Some of you are going through all kinds of trials and difficulties and pain, and it seems like God cannot be in this. How can God be in this? This doesn't make any sense. It seems like there's nothing good, nothing beneficial that can come from your grief and your sorrow, but If you're here this morning and you're a child of God, if you're in Christ, that's never the case. It's never the case that there is nothing good or beneficial that is coming from the things that are happening in your life. And you may think, well, how in the world can that be? It doesn't make sense to me. The disciples are struggling with the exact same issue. And Jesus gives his disciples a parable to help them understand how God can work in this way. I love that Jesus gives parables. He's a master storyteller. I'm a simple man. I'm not a rocket scientist. I need help. And Jesus gives them a simple illustration. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, I have heard that childbirth is very difficult. I've heard from experts, namely moms, that childbirth can be one of the most excruciating experiences ever. Can I get an amen, moms? Oh my, you know it. (laughs) It's hard, it's painful, there can be many tears. And there can be suffering, and she has sorrow because her hour has come. But on the other end of that grief, on the other end of that pain, on the other end of that difficulty and trial and struggle, guess what? A beautiful baby is born, and I have yet to hear of a mom. After giving birth, after that beautiful child is in her arms, I have yet to hear a mom, as she is looking down at that baby, she is saying, well, that definitely was not worth it. <laughs> if you thought that, don't raise your hand. I don't think anybody has thought that. That wasn't worth those hours of intense labor. Can I get a refund? No one says that. Instead, there is great joy It's not that the pain was irrelevant. It's not even that the pain is now all gone. But the joy of having this incredible child overwhelms the pain. It is greater than the pain. As a matter of fact, it's worth 
the pain. And the thing that caused so much grief and difficulty in the end leads to something good. It leads to joy. And if you are in Christ this morning, be encouraged. That's exactly how God works in your life every time. God has never promised you a life free of pain and sorrow. But He has promised that sorrow and suffering will never have the final word. That's why we are told in James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, why do we count it as joy? That sounds uh, masochistic. (laughs) It's not. We're not having joy about the specific difficulty. Oh, I'm suffering and this is awesome. I love suffering. Bring it on. No, no, that's, that's not the point here. Because James goes on to explain what he means. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's not joy about the bad thing that is happening in your life. It instead is joy because you know that God is going to somehow work out a good outcome. The mother is not joyful about the labor pains, but she is sustained by the hope of joy on the other side of the pain. Does that make sense? And for God's people, our suffering, our sorrow, our tears are never a waste. Indeed, our sorrow becomes the seeds that later on brings forth the fruit of joy, precisely because God can cause all things to work together for good. And we don't have to fully understand how God does all of that. That's above my pay grade. I couldn't explain that to you. But God is God. That's enough for me. That gives me hope. Now, the Bible is full of examples of how God works in this way, the life of Joseph and, and, and other great uh, stories in the Bible. But the, really, the very best example, if you want to go to the best example of this, the best example is the cross. The cross didn't make sense to the disciples. The cross did not compute. The cross was painful for the disciples. It was painful for Jesus. The cross did not factor into the disciples' plans and into their script of how things should go down. They had a completely different script, believe me. The cross was the moment where it seemed like the forces of darkness had achieved their greatest victory. But the very blow that the forces of evil strike against Christ results in the thing that unleashes the greatest triumph of Christ. The very event that causes the disciples the deepest grief and sorrow is the event that will lead to their greatest joy. That's how the wisdom and the power of God works. And if that principle is true in the worst horror imaginable, namely the betrayal and the sufferings and the brutal murder of the innocent Son of God, if that principle is true in that situation... Certainly it is true in your own sufferings. And that is not meant to minimize your sufferings. Actually, this principle does the exact opposite. This principle gives a higher meaning and design and purpose to our sufferings. 
Because now our sufferings are not just something that merely makes us feel bad. Instead, when we view our sufferings biblically through the lens of Scripture, and when we remember the horrible sufferings and injustice done to Christ by His enemies, we are reminded that the sufferings of God's people are never in vain. And in fact, will further God's good purposes for our lives and not defeat those purposes. And the knowledge of God's good and sovereign and wise plans is meant to release in us hope and joy. God brings forth beauty from what seems to be ashes. He can take sorrow and turn that into joy. And again, that does not minimize suffering. Instead, it maximizes the meaning of it. Matter of fact, it is actually naturalistic, atheistic, evolutionary theory that minimizes your sufferings. The stuff they're going to teach you in college, young people. That minimizes your sufferings because if life is just the result of meaningless chance, if there is no good God in the universe and no qualitative difference between you and a one-celled ocean organism or you and stardust and we are all alone, then guess what? All of your suffering is ultimately meaningless, a waste, and in vain. You can try to construct some sort of personal meaning out of your sufferings and pretend that there's something in it for you, and you can kind of live in an illusion and construct a fantasy, fairy tale world. If you can do that, good luck. But in the end, there is no sorrow that will ultimately be turned to joy. There is no evil that can be turned around and used for good. You live, you suffer, you die, you're alone, you're done. That is the empty vision of atheistic evolution. But the vision of the Scriptures is a vision of a God who has the power to take that which is evil and turn it into something that is ultimately good. If He did it with the cross, He can do it with the sorrows you are enduring right now. Jesus says in verse 22, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. What will be the source of your greatest grief, the cross, will pave the way to their greatest joy, the empty tomb. And likewise for us, the cross and the empty tomb is to be the foundation of joy for you. Other things in your life may seem to be coming apart, coming apart at the seams and failing you, but one thing is certain, no man can ever undo the work of grace that God did in your life through the cross. Jesus also promises that the disciples will move from tragedy to triumph. Again, these disciples, they see everything has fallen apart. They see what's happening as a tragedy. They're convinced that all is lost. They're convinced that that it's all over. But Jesus continues to press forward into the hearts of these disciples. He is relentless in his encouragement. Because this is not the time for despair. Because not only are the disciples about to experience a time of unprecedented joy, but also unprecedented fruitfulness as they move into the mission that God has for them to spread the gospel. Their own strength and resources are weak and limited and shallow, and they know that all too well. It's why they're so afraid. But Jesus is promising them that they will not be alone, that they will receive everything they need to successfully carry out all that God has called them to do. 
And so in verse 23, he says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. There is nothing in these words of Jesus that speaks of tragedy. As Jesus begins to draw this discourse to a close, it is sounding increasingly like a victory speech. It has the ring of triumph. Jesus isn't talking like a victim. He's talking like a victor. And what an amazing promise he gives him here. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Really? Anything I ask? Hmm? We know that some people have abused that verse, and they teach that if you just have enough faith, you'll get anything you want in prayer. That's not true. So what does Jesus mean? Let's think about this. Let's, let's compare Scripture with Scripture. Turn back to John 14. Context is so helpful here. Turn back to John 14, where Jesus says something similar. It's not identical, but it is similar, and this is going to help us. John 14, starting at verse 13, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, so there it is again, this amazing promise. Ask anything in my name, and I will do it. But notice, there's a very significant qualification. Did you pick it up? What's the purpose of God answering our prayers? that the Father may be glorified. So God, chiefly concerned about the triumph of His own glory, is only going to answer prayers that bring glory to Him. When I say answer prayer, I, I mean like answer it in the way that you want Him to. I mean, no is also an answer, but just so you understand what I'm saying. He answers prayers that bring glory to Him. So if you pray, Lord... Give me a new Ferrari. Make it red. You pray that, and if that doesn't glorify God, which it probably won't, He's not going to give that to you. And you can't go back and say, well, Jesus said this, and He promised this. No, we have context here to understand exactly what He's talking about. God will answer any prayer any prayer, any prayer that will glorify God and that will put God in the spotlight, that will help us or help others honor and treasure and value and love God all the more. He will answer those prayers. He will give you what you ask for if that is the end result. Earlier this week, I was, I was lying there in bed in awe because I just realized that something very specific I prayed for recently was answered in the exact way that I had asked. And I realized in that moment then, consequently, that what I had asked for out of all the possible options was the scenario that was most glorifying to God. I knew that to be the case because He answered the prayer exactly the way that I prayed it. I knew that based on Jesus' promise here. And that is an amazing feeling when you realize that. And I'm sure many of you uh, have similar testimonies of answered prayer. And we should not be shocked by this, because this is exactly what Jesus promises would happen. On the other hand, and I'm sure you can relate to this too, there are other prayers where God did not give me specifically what I asked for. 
Sometimes it seemed like he was giving me the opposite of what I asked for. And it is in those moments that I have got to trust the wisdom of God, that he knows best how to respond to my requests in a way that will give him the most glory. And you know what? If we love God's glory more than our own desires and preferences, then we can actually thank God for those unanswered requests where God in his wisdom says no. But there's more. Turn back to John 16. As I was laying there in bed that morning thanking God for this answered prayer, I remembered that he did not only do it for his glory, he did it for my joy. Again, verse 24. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. So, we're learning more about prayer here. The type of prayer that God will answer is a prayer that does two things. One, gives him the most glory, and two, gives you the most joy. There is no conflict between God's glory and your joy. The two go hand in hand. They actually work together. And there is probably no better example of how this works in the Gospel of John than in John chapter 11 and the story of Lazarus. Turn that back there with me, John chapter 11. John 11. <clears throat> Just an aside, I love the rustling, hearing the rustling of the pages of the Bible. I love that. Now, more and more as we get into the tech age, I might have to like, look and see you swiping. But right now, I'm, I'm hearing pages. I like that. John chapter 11. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay, so we we know the story. Most of us do that Lazarus actually ends up dying. We also know that Jesus raises him from the dead. However, the amazing thing is, is that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, despite the prayers of Lazarus's sisters, their natural request for Jesus, of course, is for, for him to come and to do something. In spite of all of that, did Jesus rush to Lazarus's side to answer their request and heal him? What did Jesus do? He lingered for a couple of days on purpose so that by the time Jesus finally does show up, Lazarus has already died. Friends, he let Lazarus die. He could have gotten to Lazarus earlier. He could have spared him from death and healed him. But he didn't. Why? He tells you in verse 4, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it, through this situation. That's why all of this is happening. We know that Jesus loved Lazarus. We know that he was concerned about Lazarus, but the text says that the engine driving Jesus to do what he did and lingering and letting the illness kill Lazarus is so that Jesus could be glorified. Now, in a way, that seems outrageous. That seems cruel. That Jesus is so concerned with his own glory that he lets Lazarus suffer and die and let the sisters go through that in immense, intense suffering. Seems pretty selfish, doesn't it? 
All this to make the Son of God look good. With friends like that, who needs enemies? That might be going through some people's heads because we're ignorant. Verse 4, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Do you, do you see what I just read in that last sentence? There is a little word there, that word, so. Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus, so Jesus stayed two days longer. That little word, so, is so huge. So now we see that there are actually two reasons, two reasons that Jesus let Lazarus suffer and die. The first reason is so that the Son of God may be glorified in this situation. And the second reason Jesus let Lazarus die is because he loved them. I wonder if the little box that you have constructed for God can handle what I just said. This is incredible. And these two reasons... Jesus' glorification, that's to occur a few verses later, and his love for Martha, her sister, and Lazarus, those things are interconnected. They're not in conflict with each other. And the other thing that is connected is the joy that Martha, her sister, and Lazarus would receive when Jesus glorified himself through raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus' glory, the manifestation of his glory in that moment, resulted in maximum joy for those people. If Jesus would have withheld that from them, if he would have rushed in and healed Lazarus before he died, it would have been less glory for Jesus and less joy for Lazarus and the others. I hope you're tracking with that. This is important. In the moment, it seems unloving for Jesus to not heal Lazarus. It seems like In our ignorance, it seems like he is being cruel to him and to Mary and to Martha to not not answer their prayer in the exact way that they were asking. But he's not being mean. He's not being unkind. Instead, he's being loving. Jesus wants maximum glory for himself and maximum joy for his friends. And the sorrow and grief that he allows them to go through is worth all of that in the end. The sorrow was temporary, but that sorrow was turned into unbelievable joy. You see, if Mary and Martha and Lazarus wrote the script and God rubber-stamped their script, guess what? They would have missed out on a spectacular display of Jesus' glory and would have received lesser joy. Sure, they would have received some joy, but not as much as if God writes the script. Now, fast forward to John 16. If the 11 disciples wrote the script and God gave them what they wanted, Jesus would not have went to the cross and they would have went to hell. You see, everything that God is doing in the lives of those disciples is for the sake of the triumph of His glory and the triumph of their joy. And yet, how often do we get angry with God 
when he doesn't follow our little script? How often do we get upset with him for not giving us what we want without even realizing that if he gave us what we wanted, it would be less glory for him and it would result in less joy for you? Isn't it good that God is captain of your ship and not you? I would have shipwrecked a long time ago. Friends, we need to trust. We need to trust that God knows what he is doing. And if he allows suffering and sorrow, and if he doesn't answer your prayer by giving you exactly what you want, when you want it, in the way that you want it, Our response should not be that everything is falling apart and everything is defeated, and our response instead should be praise and thanksgiving and hopeful expectation for something better than what we actually asked for. And let me just interject a quick word about our recent pastor search process. Let's try to apply this to our whole church. I am sure that some of you are sad and disappointed with the outcome, but hear me on this. You and I and many others in this church have been praying to the Father about this without ceasing for months now. And we've been offering up prayers and petitions, supplications and requests. We have come to the Father in the name of Jesus and have offered Him up all of these prayers in regards to pastor search. And so I want you to be encouraged. God heard every single one of those prayers every single one. And in his sovereign wisdom, he responded, not in the way that some of us might have liked, and not in a way according to the script that some of us might have written. But the question for us is, was God defeated? What was his plan for Harbin's church somehow messed up due to circumstances beyond his control? Or, Did God triumph and have His way with us in this process for His glory and for the ultimate joy of this church? How wonderful it is to know that God will always respond to our prayers and our requests in the very best way, every single time. God's good purposes for your life or for Harbin's church can never ever be defeated, and nothing but good is coming to you from His hand. So, we need to pray that God would help our minds to be better saturated and governed by scriptural truth to the point where we can trust that God is writing a better script, writing a better story that will yield a better outcome in regards to His glory in our final joy. Now, ultimately, this path that Jesus would have us walk, from sorrow and suffering and apparent tragedy to joy and gladness and certain triumph, is a path that Jesus himself walked. And so we are told then to look to Jesus, to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. No one suffered as greatly as Jesus. And yet his goal was not the avoidance of pain. His goal was not immediate comfort and relief now. His goal was maximum joy and maximum glory. 
and the hope of joy sustained him in his moment of greatest pain and greatest sorrow. And the thing that caused him his greatest sorrow was the thing that paved the way to unbelievable joy. And for that joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he trusted his Father. What joy was that? Surely it was the joy of glorifying God and saving you. That's the point of the cross. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, Jesus, so that if you today would believe in Him, you would not perish in your sins but have everlasting life. And so Jesus experienced the pain of hell itself so that you could experience the joy that is found in God. He paid the price for sins so that if you receive His payment, you won't have to go to hell where there is no joy but only everlasting sorrow. And so this discourse began in chapter 14 with the disciples in great despair, that it's all falling apart, that it's all lost, and they could not have been more wrong. And if there's any doubt in that, Jesus ends this discourse with a glorious and triumphal declaration in verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Some translations say, be of good cheer. I like that. Take heart, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying, yes, you will experience sorrow. Yes, you will experience grief in this evil world. That is true. But I've overcome all of that through the cross. And if you believe in me, you will overcome those things with me. And if Christ's victory is the source of your joy and strength, then no one can take it away. And the fruit of that is peace. Look at verse 33. He says, I said these things to you so that you may have peace. Peace in what? Not in your money. Not in the hope that everything will turn out according to your will and preferences and plans. That's not where peace is to be found. Those are unstable places to drop your anchor. Jesus says, I say these things that in me, in Jesus, you may have peace. The triumph and the victory of Christ is meant to be the anchor that holds us secure, that holds us fast, and gives us peace through the tribulations and sorrows of life. If Christ has won, if He has prevailed in the midst of the darkest and most sorrowful and evil moment in history, namely His murder. And he has turned that around into the greatest possible good imaginable. Then guess what? You can take heart because the same God is triumphing in every single area of your life right now. Your pain and your sorrow will not have the last word because if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is constantly and powerfully working in every trial and tribulation in your life right now. And He will do it in such a way where His glory is maximized and where your joy may be full. Bank on that promise. Take heart. Be of good cheer. He has overcome the world. Let's pray.